the IT team pretty much had no voice. And the day they went to implement and do the cutover, and oh, by the way, they had decided to do this with no failover, with no backup, because if they burned all the boats, they figured that people would be more focused on success, I guess. So when they went to do the cutover on the CRM system, it, it was scheduled for Halloween. I can like almost feel the environment because I was laying in my bed. It was four o'clock in the morning. I pulled up my Blackberry because that's when the cutover was gonna go live. And what I'm seeing is it didn't go live. It didn't go live after five minutes. It didn't go live after an hour. It didn't go live after three hours. And it didn't go live for oh five, five months. We missed the wow. entire Christmas sales season. From Cobalt at Home, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Karen Worstel. Karen is well known as a Silicon Valley technology leader and serial DISO for little companies that no one has ever heard of, like Microsoft and AT&T. Her company, W Risk Group, provides cybersecurity consulting and coaching intensives called Mojo Maker for women in tech. I kind of feel like I've known Karen throughout my entire career, and I can't actually pinpoint when we met. I suspect that we met through Jim Revis, Dave Colonnane, or maybe the Executive Women's Forum. Karen, welcome to our podcast today. Well, I'm so happy to be here, Caroline. Thanks for having me. It is my absolute pleasure. You know, the last time we spoke, we had this funny conversation where I said, you know, Karen, your brand today is that of a coach. Uh, and would you mind if on the podcast, we talked a little bit about your CISO life? Um, and you actually shared a story with me that was funny, which was that when you were kind of transitioning your brand from CISO to coach, you actually got some feedback from folks in the opposite direction. <laughs> exactly. No, it, you know, brand switching is not that easy. And actually, I'd never really thought of the fact that I had a brand. So I figured it would be an easy thing once I became, I went through my chaplaincy and I became a coach. I was like, okay, I'm going to put this out there. And the pushback was so strong. And that's when I first realized I actually had a brand. I don't really, I've never really paid attention to that until lately. So yeah, it was a, that was a, that was a really great, actually, it was a, a somewhat gratifying. It's like, oh, people do know what I did. Now I need to convince them that I do something new. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because there are people who think, oh, Karen, you know, she's so technical. She's a CISO person, um, which you are, and you're a coach. Um, and I'm, I'm so looking forward to talking about all these things. Karen, I would love to start out by asking you if you could describe yourself to our listeners as a girl. What was your girlhood like? Sure. I am the first daughter. I had two older brothers. I grew up in a household of nine where about, I don't know, a quarter of our population in the household was over the age of 80. So I grew up in a multi-generational household. And one of the things that I realized recently that many of the people who raised me were born prior to the 
turn of the 20th century. And um, I spent a a great deal of my childhood with my aunties, my great aunties and my grandfather, all of whom were born in the 1880s or before. It definitely imprinted me with the value of my ancestors, the value of my elders. It imprinted me with a tremendous respect for my parents. I lived a very sheltered life, I would say, as a child surrounded by grown-ups, some of whom admittedly had dementia. So my comfort zone really is in a collection of people who think in a very non-linear and (laughs) non-traditional way. And as a kid, I was not a technical person. In fact, that really was my sister, Jan. I have a younger sister, Jan, who is, she went on to be an MIT and a Caltech engineer. She designed antenna arrays for spacecraft. Um, she was associated with the program, the space program at NASA. So very, very technical. I was the one who thought I would make a career somehow designing ball gowns for Barbie dolls and that I would be the musician. And I loved everything to do with art. I'm 98% right-brained to this day. So um, yeah, my childhood was, I have to say, probably very standard for that era. It's a different view of the world. I I grew up with a really different view of the world than what what we have now, for sure. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. You and I have talked about our fathers and how the ways in which they raised us affected the way that we see ourselves. And I kind of, you know, I kind of chuckled to myself, actually, as you share your story of being a young person and saying, well, I wasn't really, you know, the technical one. It was my sister that was technical, you know, and I also know that you have degrees in biology and music and chemistry and biochemistry and molecular biology and a master's in computer science. Um, And so I wonder, what was it that inspired you to want to learn so much about so many things? Oh, gosh. In my household, as I was growing up, and I'll I'll try to fast forward through this because this is a, you know, we don't want to spend all of our time here, but um, father put a tremendous value on knowledge. Tremendous. So our household was one that was always talking about ideas. So I was surrounded by, of course, my father was a Navy fighter pilot. He was a a night squadron commander on the squadron that off the USS Essex that was called the Fabulous 15. He had he had invented multiple inventions before he was in his mid-20s. He was very focused on understanding the world around him. He became a medical doctor after college. He was also an engineer and ran the engineering for my grandfather's manufacturing company. So to me, that was normalized as you kind of are supposed to know everything about everything. And when we would have my father's cousins come to visit, some of whom were in the ministry, and we would be up, I I swear, all night long debating 
exploring, trying to understand, you know, what the world looked like in the world of faith. And so, yeah, that was just sort of normal for me. Like, oh yeah, that's not, that's not unusual that somebody would have a wide range of interests and explore all of them. So I never really gave it a thought. It wasn't like my goal to go out there and, and learn everything. It's just that that's what I understood that people did. When it came time for me to go to college, I was also, I would say, um, very interested in pleasing my parents and pleasing my elders and wanting to live up to be the kind of person they wanted me to be. And so when it came time to go through high school and go to college, I would take this wide variety, wide range of courses. And the science courses were, of course, a part of that. And when it came time for me to go to college, one of the things he said to me, a couple of things really stuck with me. He said, my daughters, my daughters will never be consumers in this lifetime. They will be producers. Wow, that, and I'll never forget the moment I heard that the first time. And it was just assumed, I think, by him that I would then go on to college. And even though I was a heavily into music and performance and all of that kind of stuff that I would, <laughs> I would study the natural sciences. So I, of course, signed up for physics and chemistry and English and calculus my first semester of college. And I remember coming home to him and, you know, my huge wake up call was this was not my natural way of thinking, my natural way of interacting with the world. And I needed to learn to be much more linear. I needed to learn the symbolic language of mathematics. And I went to him and I said, Dad, listen, I would be Phi Beta Kappa if I could do all humanities. I'd knock it out of the park. You'd be so proud of me. And he, and he looked at me and he said, but who would pay for school? And that was, <laughs> the, end. That was the end of that conversation. Like it was so clear in that moment that... This was the way it was going to be. That's how I, that was my, that was literally the way I interacted with my elders. Like if they gave me a pronouncement, then I would follow that. I didn't rebel much. And so I did exactly what he expected. And I have to say, I came home every single weekend from college and cried. If I stayed in my dorm room, I cried. If I went to visit friends on the weekend, I cried. I knew that I would have to go back on Monday. And I was working. This is probably where part of my work ethic developed because I spent so much more time on my homework than I perceived my colleagues doing just to get a grade that was average or above average. And it took me quite a while to really get the hang of all that. So I did actually graduate with a decent grade point average. My first year was a total wipeout. But after that, I did much better. So I guess that encouraged me to try some other things and go on in computer science and so forth. You didn't mention my master's degree in theology, though. So, <laughs> Ah, yes, that is true. And that is not on purpose. <laughs> but I would very much like to get there in our conversation. Karen, when I have opportunities to learn about our colleagues, and some, some have told me about really strong parents and their influence in their lives. And I think that sometimes a parent's influence can have such a remarkable impact on a child's life. You know, in 2002, you find yourself 
as an SVP at Bank of America working on security. Can you tell me what was it like during that time? What was it like to be sort of this really big time security leader with these massive jobs, incredible responsibility, really interesting problems to solve? What was that like for you? Oh, yeah. Well, I had had some practice before I got to Bank of America. At that time, I was not the head of information security. I want to make sure everybody understands. I was working for Rhonda McLean, who has, I've worked for her multiple times in my career, right? I hear that applause. I, I share that. She is really one of the icons of the industry. And I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to work for her. At Bank of America, my role there at the time that I took the job, I was full-time caregiver for my mother. I did my job at Bank of America remotely because my mother, who had Alzheimer's, was living with me. She had moderately advanced Alzheimer's. So um, she was in our home and we were doing that. I was literally on meetings all day long with the bank with a headset on and making sure that I knew where my mother was 100% of the time. So there was that backdrop, right? What we were doing was so interesting because this was right after 9-11 and the bank had had this incredible success of being the bank that recovered the stock markets because the Bank of New York that cleared all the transactions for the stock exchange had been pretty much demolished in the attacks of 9-11. And Bank of America, because of their ability to fail over their processing from New York to Chicago and San Francisco, was able to carry the extra load of all the transactions. So one of the roles that I had when I came onto Bank of America was all of the business continuity work to make sure that all of the elements of the bank were running and always had a backup plan. I learned so much from the team. Andy McCruder, who was part of my team then, and a number of other people who were so, such dedicated professionals taught me so much. So that was fun for me. I learned a ton there. And I provided the cybersecurity support through a bunch of incredible engineers for the Global Commercial Investment Bank for Treasury and Asset Management. I am so grateful that I was given that opportunity by Rhonda, even though under the circumstances, she knew that I would not be able to be in Charlotte. I had to be on the West Coast. I had to work out of my home. And uh, yeah, she made that possibility for me, which I'll be grateful for forever. That is so cool. <laughs> what was next for you? Well, Tell me about AT&T. Right. After Bank of America... I was recruited by AT&T Wireless. That was a very, very, also a very interesting experience. I was the VP of IT Risk Management and the Chief Information Security Officer. And it looked at the outset like it was going to be a relatively normal position, right? It was going to be a cybersecurity position, one like I had done in the past. I had been doing those leadership roles for about... I don't know, about seven years by the time I got there. And when uh, I arrived in August, the very first thing we got hit with was Code Red. I think NIMDA and Code Red. We had a hurricane that hit, hit the island of Bermuda, direct hit on the island of Bermuda. 
literally the week after we closed on the purchase of all of the cellular assets on the island of Bermuda. That's when I learned that we had a cellular station and tower, the only one for the entire island, was on a mountaintop. It might be the only mountaintop on the island of Bermuda in a disused shipping container named Kandahar. And so it wow. was really exciting. Exciting. The first week at work was really exciting, but it got more exciting after that because what um, was happening at the time that I joined the company was that they were in the midst of a implementation of Siebel because to do a total overhaul of the customer relationship management system so that they could migrate to, to a different carrier protocol. And the customer in a in a wireless company, the customer relationship management system is essential for not only tracking all of the incoming call detail records, but it's also essential for activating phones. And for whatever reason, the company had made a decision that they were going to put the business unit in charge of IT and the business unit was going to be in charge of implementing Siebel. What I had learned after the fact was anyone who disagreed with anything they were doing on that project was summarily fired. (laughs) That might be a bit of an (laughs) exaggeration, but not much. And so the IT team pretty much had no voice. And the day they went to implement and do the cutover, and oh, by the way, they had decided to do this with no failover, with no backup, because if they burned all the boats, they figured that people would be more focused on success, I guess. And so when they did, wow. <laughs> no kidding. So when they went to do the cutover on the CRM system, it, it was scheduled for Halloween. I was on my Blackberry, of course, I'm laying in bed. I'll never, I can like almost feel the environment because I was laying in my bed. It was four o'clock in the morning. I pulled up my Blackberry because that's when the cutover was going to go live. And what I'm seeing is it didn't go live and didn't go live after five minutes didn't go live after an hour. It didn't go live after three hours and it didn't go live for five five months. We missed the entire Christmas sales season because I don't know if people remember, anybody who's listening to this, if you remember, uh, if if you had bought an AT&T wireless phone during that period, you would walk out of the store without a phone that was working And in many cases, the phone didn't get activated for days. And people were coming back into the store. They were going into the AT&T wireless kiosk. They were throwing their phones at the salespeople. (laughs) And so we were on our knees. We lost, and the estimates are anywhere between $100 million and $350 million that calendar quarter. And I was the VP of IT risk management. So when it came time to sell AT&T Wireless to the joint venture between Bell South and Southwest Bell that was called Singular. That was the year, by the way, the first year of accelerated filing for Sarbanes-Oxley. And for those of you who are in the audit side of things, who understand what the implications of this, we had had such a major software failure in IT that IT was under intense scrutiny when it came time to this merger and acquisition to happen. We were having the Sarbanes-Oxley filing that had to happen. So what they did was they made the terms and conditions of the sale of AT&T Wireless contingent on zero deficiencies in IT. We had to have- Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. 
And my boss turned around to me and I'm like walking around. I'm literally walking around. This is February. The sale is supposed to happen in October. So do the math, right? What is that? Eight months? I'm literally walking around to people going, what does, what is Sarbanes-Oxley? <laughs> and this is pioneering leadership. <laughs> well, this is, this is where I learned that for leaders in this industry, if you believe, believe that you will do it, you have no freaking idea how you believe in yourself enough to know that you can get it done. You can get it done. If I can get it yeah. done, you can get it done. <laughs> and at the time we had 34 different identity and access management systems and multiple systems of record. We had so many things that were going to make us fail on this audit that we had to re-engineer IT from the top down. Bottom up, top down, however you want to talk about it. I, I think in clamshells, right? Both ways. And we, we basically re-engineered all of IT. We did get it done. I remember my boss at one point said, you know, because the, the standard way for doing Sarbanes-Oxley compliance and any kind of compliance is you go roll something out, you get it tested, you find the deficiencies and you remediate them and then you do it again, right? Until you're, until you get it right. And we didn't have the time for that. In the time frame that we had, we had to, we had one shot. We had to engineer it right. We had to identify exactly what had to be done. It had to be done the first time the right way because the final performance was the only rehearsal we got. And wow. Yeah. And my boss one time <laughs> and he goes, so when are we going to get to take a look at all of this before we have to go like live with it? And I said, you don't. And you're just going to have to trust me that we're going to get it done. That's all I can tell you. And you know what? It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, we did it. We did it. It was such a great case study for me of what could be done when you just, I mean, we hired 350 people in the space of a year. We trained everybody. We got focused on the problem. Everybody pulled together. I had an absolutely phenomenal gift from heaven program manager named Steve Broadbend, who led so much of the day-to-day -day work of making that happen. But essentially my job in all of that was to say, this is what successful compliance and a success on the merger and acquisition will look like for us. This is the target we have to hit. Distilling that down, communicating that message, making sure that's what we were working on. That was kind of my job. And, and Steve made sure all of the little bits and pieces of all of that were happening, which it would have never succeeded without him. But we had an incredible team, people who are still in the industry, who've become CISOs in their own right along the way. Some of them serve on boards of cybersecurity companies now. So it was a tremendous experience for all of us. But I think if I were going to really say to people out there, you know, we have this fear of failure, really have a fear of failure. If you believe in yourself enough that you can set the fear of failure aside and say, I know we can do this. We're going to put every single effort we have, every, every neuron in our brain is going to be looking for the solutions that's going to make this work. 
you can do incredible things. And that was really the proof of that for me in my lifetime. I'll never have another experience like that in my lifetime, I'm sure. I'm not sure I'd be up for it. <laughs> but it was, it was a great lesson. I love it. That is such an incredible story. Thank you so much. I think that what a lot of security leaders do encounter is the brand new and the unknown. And to have the courage to just go for it, that's a pretty big deal. Karen, after AT&T, you took another tiny job as CISO at Microsoft. At this time, I was on the eBay security team, and we used to almost have this myth and legend of what it must have been like to be on the Microsoft security team after Bill Gates had written the trustworthy computing memo. You know, we would say to each other so frequently, we wish the CEO would stand up and say, trustworthy computing is the number one priority. And you, you lived it. What was it like? Wow. Well, everyone obviously at Microsoft took it very, very seriously. I think there were over 900 people working in security in some way. It was another kind of experience for me. And I, and I use that term in the context of experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. So Microsoft was obviously, it's an, it's a, I would say a resume maker kind of a position to have on your job. And I will always be grateful for the opportunity to have that. Um, and so let's focus on really what that was like on your question uh, in the broader sense of the term. It was not an easy situation for me coming from AT&T Wireless where I was in a command and control, I have to say, role there. That, that so much depended, by the way, the AT&T wireless merger was with Singular was the single largest cash acquisition in U.S. history. So that had a driver behind it that was completely unique. Microsoft, on the other hand, is a company whose reserves, let's just say their reserves, exceed anything I could ever imagine in terms of the, <laughs> the numbers we were looking at at AT&T wireless. And so it is a company that can afford the kind of culture that was in place at the time. And I understand under, under Sanjay that it isn't the same anymore. But at the time, it was under Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, it was very much what I would call creative destruction. And so there was a lot of competition with all the various factions, whether they were in office or whether they were, they were in Windows or, or wherever, to try to get the cybersecurity story right. And it wasn't working. Um, it was, I would say, fairly dysfunctional. And I did what I knew how to do in my way to try to unite that and pull that together, but that was just the wrong approach to use there. And I found that in my sixth month on the job, if you can imagine this, this is a story for and you say, what would what that be like? Let me describe that for you. My sixth month on the job was when I had my very first face-to-face -face with Bill Gates and Craig Mundy. And every single product manager in the company, in the room, sitting at my back, because the message I had to take to him was the promise that he had made on the stage of RSA two years prior to me arriving there. That was that they were going to provide single sign-on security across the entire Microsoft platform was never going to happen. 
and the reasons oh, and, I, and to share with him the reasons why that was true. I've always, always in my job held the ethic that you're always better off to speak the truth. You're always better off to speak the truth, no matter how hard that message is to hear and how hard that message is to give. And that was, I have to say, I don't know, you know, I still think about it every now and then, probably once a week I revisit that day because it was a career maker or a career ender, depending on how it went. And um, the conversation didn't go well. Bill Gates was, I think he was very kind to me personally, but the message to the room was something I can't really repeat on a podcast. And it was, <laughs> it was what the heck? Like, why isn't this mm-hmm. working? Why aren't we doing this? Who's accountable for this failure? And mm-hmm. yeah, so it was kind of an eye-opener. And when I, when I left the room and I turned around to the head of Microsoft Windows at the time, who was kind of in charge of the Trustworthy Computing Initiative, along with people like Scott Charney. And I asked the question, I said, so what's next? And he goes, absolutely nothing. Everybody's going to go back and do exactly what they were doing before. Hmm. This isn't a bash on Microsoft today at all, because it's not the same company, right? But I really, I signed up for that gig I would say being a Mac user, I was signing up for the dark side and a lot of people called me, called me to tell me that. But the reason I signed up for it is because I saw in that company the opportunity to solve security end to end. They were the only company on the planet that owned everything from the desktop to the servers. Right. And they could have done it. They really could have done it. And I think that was Bill Gates' vision. But when you have a company that's based on a, a construct of creative destruction, yeah, yeah, that can make it kind of tough. People don't want to work together. They compete with each other. And, you know, Brene yeah. Brown, one of my heroes, as you know, Brene Brown, right? She talks about mm-hmm. the power of vulnerability, that the birthplace of, of creativity and innovation is the same place in human beings as the place of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have people who are able to step up and say, we are going in the wrong direction and we need to change it and do so with a certain amount of grace and mercy, right, then that conversation will never happen. And I think that was one of the big lessons. You know, they say, I started off this conversation saying experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. For me, mm-hmm. Understanding and embracing the power of vulnerability, that was what I got out of my lessons from Microsoft. And um, I had to learn it the hard way. Life sometimes teaches us with a two by four. And I think that's really what that was for me. But I will be forever grateful for the opportunity, forever grateful for the people I met there and the relationships that I built and the opportunities that I had. It was kind of one of those um, tough love lessons. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to be able to stand up and say, yes, you know, I was able to make all of these things happen at Microsoft. I was not able to make that happen. To come straight from AT&T Wireless, where we had done so much, and go to Microsoft, where I had to literally limp into my therapist's office one day and say, I just 
screwed up in such a big way and I'm leaving Microsoft. This is the biggest failure of my life. And she looks at me and she goes, well, look at you. You're still standing and you're still alive. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) thanks for that. (laughs) Good lesson. Good lesson. Karen, thank you so much for sharing your vulnerability here with us. I think that take us along with you on these adventures and put us into those moments with you and to say, there were some times when we tried to achieve the impossible and we did it. And there were some times when we tried to achieve the impossible and we did not. And just thank you so much for sharing that with us. And then there's so much that I would like to cover. I do want to talk a bit about your chaplain work mm-hmm. because the way that I imagine you is all of these things at once. And that's one of the things that I think is so cool about being a human, about being a human in InfoSec is you can be all of these things at once. You can be a musician, you can be a CISO, you can be someone who helps people at the end of their lives. How did you decide to spend time as a chaplain in your career? I knew... Um, I think it was really back. Remember that I had that family that was a multi-generational family, many of them elders with dementia. I was very used to, uh, and my father was a physician. So I was very used to, I was very used to caregiving, I guess, in a general category. And also relating to people who were in stages of life that were difficult. And so it was always in the back of my mind that I would do something like that. And after I married my husband, Craig, we decided then that we would always take in any elder in our family that needed care and that we would look out for them and take care of them. Fast forward that story, there were some very personally difficult lessons for me in all of that. So I was doing my tech job. And at the same time, like I mentioned at Bank of America, I was taking care of my mother. I did that five times with different people to one degree or another. And the difficulties that I experienced in that one time, I, and and I'm a spiritual person, right? I'm a person of faith. I literally stood in the pouring rain at at a country store one day as I was caring for one of these elders and having an extraordinarily difficult situation. And I, I was at a payphone at the time, standing in the pouring rain in a payphone in a country store, speed dialing every person I knew that I had quarters for to uh, try to find somebody to talk to about my difficulty and found no one. Um, every, every line was busy for some reason that day. It was kind of a divine, like a divine thing. I remember standing there in the rain. I just was looking up at this gray, cloudy Northwest sky, rain just all over my face and going, why am I going through this? And the voice that I really heard was because your job is to learn how to help others. And so mm. it became something on my bucket list for you know, later in life that I I was like, yeah, okay, how does that happen? (laughs) How do I do that? Like I'm a cybersecurity person. And fast forward to father had passed away. My mother was living with me. I was working at Russell Investments. I actually had put my mother into um, nursing home care. I was working at Russell Investments. 
My sister is diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. I get laid off from my job at Russell Investments in a huge management shift and my mom dies. And I, (laughs) so all of these things had kind of like happened in this giant confluence in the stream of life that created a huge disruption. And I, I said, okay, that's it. I'm going to take some time off from my work at cybersecurity. I was doing consulting work for a number of companies. I'm just going to step away from that for a little bit and I'll get back into it. And I tried getting back into it and I couldn't. Like I literally could not make my, I signed up for SANS courses, things I'd always wanted to study because I love this field, but I couldn't, I could not make myself go back. All I can say to you is that there was like this divine detour sign that kind of dropped out of the heavens Mm -hmm. and said, no, you need to do something else right now. I want you to remember what you said you were going to do right now. And as it so happens, I was talking to someone in planned giving at Multicare Medical Center in Tacoma. And I mentioned to her, you know, I've always thought I would one day be a chaplain. And she looked at me and she goes, They are interviewing the people for the next chaplain cohort training and that, and that interview process ends this week and they're still looking for one person to fill the cohort. She says, call them right now. I'm calling them for you right now. Mm -hmm. I, I went over and interviewed and I got in and that was the beginning of the next five years. So I had to have another master's degree. That's when I got my master's degree in theology. I did 2,000 supervised clinical hours of training in uh, trauma and palliative care. And I became the palliative care fellow at the the Veterans Administration in Portland. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the best, best times in my life. I, I guess I would say everything that I did as a driver, like being a driver in cybersecurity, being a leader, a driver in, in chaplaincy, I needed to be a servant. Mm. And it helped me develop who I really was in a much more holistic sort of a way. So yeah, I was able to do that. And then I actually came back to cyber from there and decided to become a coach because as I was working in the medical system and I noticed the amount of distress and burnout that was occurring mm-hmm. among the medical team, I'm like, holy smokes, this looks just like what I saw when I was in cybersecurity. And mm. so the next ding, 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 you know, from, from wherever that comes from <laughs> kind of taps me on the shoulder. And one of the things that is, you know, chaplaincy was something that developed in World War I. There is something that is called the principle of proximity. And that means that the chaplains don't sit out in their field tent waiting, waiting for the soldiers from the front line to make an appointment to show up. The chaplain goes and sits in the foxhole. And mm-hmm. my foxhole was in cybersecurity and technology. And that's how I ended up back here as a, you know, I did, I also did my, ch- my coach training. I'm a strategic interventionist and I used my coach training all throughout my chaplaincy. It, I saw phenomenal, phenomenal results with patients and their families. And I decided to bring that all back into the tech community and the cybersecurity community. And that's what I do now.
It is so, so incredible. It has struck me as you've shared your story with us that in cybersecurity, you were trying to achieve the impossible and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And it also strikes me that in chaplaincy, I imagine that there is an awful lot of letting go of control, <laughs> that there's so much in that work that you cannot control, but no one can control, but that there are things you can. And I just think, I just think it's such a beautiful curve of your life and your career. And I'm so grateful that you're sharing it with us. Karen, what do you want our listeners to know about Mojo Maker? What's next for you? Yeah, thanks for asking. I decided that one of the things that we would dig into was the understanding of why women were leaving tech in droves. When I joined the computing workforce back in the 1980s, 34% of the computing workforce was made up of women. That number today is around 18%. And in cyber, I think it might be a little lower in spite of what Steve Morgan says, we argue about this all the time. <laughs> the truth is that women who are in the positions in technology and in cyber that will allow them to step into the role of the chief information security officer is not where it needs to be. And the reason for that is there are many structural barriers and we're hearing a whole lot about that these days. But there's also personal barriers because I believe that what's happened is Brotopia. I call it Brotopia because of Emily Chang's book um, on dismantling the Boys Club of Silicon Valley, which I highly recommend. It's um, eye-opening. When I take a look at the blueprint that was laid on me in the, se in the 70s and 80s into going into the technology world, it's laid on every single person in the technology industry right now. We've all internalized it, like subconsciously internalized this blueprint about the way that we work together and the way things should be. And that blueprint does not serve women and people of color. My whole goal here is to break down the personal barriers, the structural barriers that exist in tech so that everyone can thrive, that everyone has that opportunity, that we build that diversity and equity and inclusion in cybersecurity, in technology, that we stop pretending like it's there because it's not. And we make the opportunity for women to reach the kinds of levels in their career that they want to reach, whatever that might be for them. The way I was able to do it but they shouldn't have to go through the same things I had to go through to get there. Do you know what I'm saying? It needs to be, yeah. it needs to be a lot less difficult. It needs to take a lot less of a toll on us as human beings. Let's just make it equitable, right? So that's mm -hmm. my goal. And so part of what we've done is we've created a, a coaching program uh, up until COVID-19. We did in-person intensives, and then we did online coach, group coaching. We are pivoting that to 100% online group coaching. So that remains to be seen how that all works with everybody. But we do, we do individual coaching on a very limited basis, but we do group coaching because I find, and, and I learned this in chaplaincy, that when people can see what 
other people are struggling with, everyone accelerates much more quickly. So that's what we're trying to accomplish here. And we, we have 21 different areas of coaching that we found are really effective. And some of the results we get are phenomenal because I'm watching, essentially what I'm watching is the tiny little tweak that happens when a woman sheds that blueprint allows her to do the step up, be seen, have the visibility and opportunity, but also get the compensation that she deserves. And we're seeing women get huge pay bumps, huge opportunity increases within a month sometimes of our intensive uh, within five months of starting the program for sure. It just shows me that everybody has that ability. It just takes a little bit of encouragement and a little bit of unlocking to make that happen. And that's what keeps me going <laughs> doing this because, um, you know, I think, well, it, it combines both my worlds together. It combines my love of technology and my belief in everything that's going to happen in technology to make the world a better place in the people who are in cyber, but also in recognizing we are not in control of everything, but we don't have to accept things that are laid on top of us that don't work for us. We have that choice and, um, and that's what we want to show people. So that's what we do. Phenomenal. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you for your contribution to our industry. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. I am so excited for Mojo Maker and everyone who will benefit from it. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Caroline. It's been my pleasure. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io, a pen testing as a service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.